You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. I would argue that um, from uh, PEI, preliminary economic assessment, pre-fees and feasibility, should not take a company more than 18 months. I've signed off, you know, well over $2 billion of, of projects in my career. Um, either being part of a team or, or the head of the team. Um, whilst I was working for IXM in the last three years, um, I traveled to all destinations where you know mining was happening. Um, my first year with IXM, I single-handedly did over 40 projects. Thanks for tuning in to Mining Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers. Well, how do we as retail investors go about valuing late-stage explorers, developers, and producers? How do we determine growth? How do we determine if the feasibility studies and what management tells us is accurate so that we can make informed decisions on a risk reward basis? Well, here to talk all these things through me is Craig Hutton. He's an expert in terms of mining economics. Craig, welcome to the show. And you are the author of a book that I have had for a couple of weeks in my possession that I'm slowly going through and trying to comprehend and read again so I can through osmosis, taking a lot of this information. And your book is called Mining Economics Explained, a guide for boards, executives, managers, and investors. So welcome to the show for the first time. Well, thank you, Bill. Nice to be here. Let's go over your bona fides. Uh, a little bit about your back uh, story, please, and experience in mining and what makes you qualified to discuss this topic. Sure, Bill. So um, I've got 35 years in, in mining. I started uh, as a geologist um, in the late 80s, got a bursary with a company in South Africa called Anglo-American, a substantial uh, company. Uh, it's listed today on the London Stock Exchange. And uh, early in my career after qualifying, um, I felt that I needed to do something in uh, finance and, and economics. So I um, then pursued um, studies, got a Bachelor of Commerce and majored in finance and economics. Early in the 90s in South Africa, there was, there was quite an upheaval in the mining industry. And, um, you know, the focus became on you know, how you actually make money and how you run mines quite efficiently. And so it was a good time to start in the mining industry. And uh, when I finished with Anglo American, I moved on to a company called Harmony Gold Mining Company. And uh, a young mining engineer by the name of Bernard Swanepoel arrived. And he was heralded because he had the lowest cost um, mining operation in the province of the Free State, South Africa. And he came on board. And one of the great learnings that um, he really instilled in me in those early days was prior prioritizing the ore body and really understanding whether the ore body could yield, um, you know, the results that, um, you know, the mining um, fraternity and industry were expecting. Um, and so that was, uh, I spent seven years with uh, Harmony Gold Mining Company. In that time, the company became the fifth largest gold miner by production worldwide. Um, so it was a great learning ground. Um, from Harmony Gold Mine, I then moved on, took a, a role with Placer Dome in South Africa at uh, the South Deep uh, Gold Mine, which remains the biggest single resource in the world. And today, Goldfields uh, owns it. Um, and it's uh, certainly been turned around and producing stellar results today. And from there, I then moved back to Anglo-American head office, and I became a principal mining economist. And uh, back in 2006, 2007, um, you know, we were involved and in, in part of the team that looked after $120 billion of um, project pipeline. Um, so it was a big uh, project pipeline in those days. Um, and certainly I was the sort of, my breakthrough in being able to look at projects internationally um, as early as 2006, 2007. I left them um, and then went into consulting role um, in 2008 uh, on my own. Um, fast forward then to 2012, um, I was asked to go and look at projects in Zimbabwe and uh, came across a company in Zimbabwe called African Consolidated Resources. And we had a look at um, their projects. And one of their projects was an old Rio Tinta mine called Pixon Peerless. 
In uh, 2013, the board asked me to uh, join, join the board and become the CEO. And within the next 14 months, we delivered um, not only a preliminary economic assessment, but a pre-fees and a feasibility study within 14 months, which uh, really was record time, but it was enabled because of the principles that we applied that are encoded in the book that I've recently published. And so we delivered three and a half million ounces of uh, gold, a million, a million ounces of, uh, sorry, that was uh, mineral resource, a million ounces of reserve, and the valuation was quarter of a billion dollars for a company that was trading on the market for only $25 million market cap. Um, so that was, you know, on a project basis versus market cap a 10 times return, if you wish. Um, having left them, um, I continued with consulting. Um, you know, my role was done with them. And uh, then in uh, 2018, a company called IXM Metals, which is a trading house owned by China Molly, asked me to join them. And I spent three years uh, with them, really understanding the sort of trading world um, and getting sort of a, a better understanding that end of the market. So, you know, having come up through the ranks, being quite technical, um, really to to round off the edges, if you wish, uh, spending three years in a trading house uh, was good experience. And I resigned from them um, in March of this year. And uh, we're looking at uh, taking a copper mine to market this year. So that's an action. Yeah, that's an excellent overview. So what was the impetus of this book? Why did you write it? Was it just to put your own thoughts in writing for future generations, or are you trying to make an impact on the industry currently? Yeah, uh, you know, I think predominantly it was my frustration back in 2006, 2007, and, you know, sitting on a pipeline of $120 billion for Anglo-Americans. And the mantra of the day was go big or go home. And because I had studied economics and, you know, we had developed with um, Harmony Gold Mining Company an algorithm, you know, fundamentally I knew that the go big or go home without understanding the ore body was problematic. And, uh, and you know, fast forward to sort of 2012, 2013, you know, metal prices began to soften and there was all kinds, the industry was in all kinds of trouble. In those two years, it was $120 billion of impairment that was uh, – put onto the books and, you know, stock uh, prices crashed, you know, and, um, and then, you know, sitting back in the aftermath of that saying, you know, what went wrong? So 2015, I wrote a paper which was published in the South African Institute of uh, Mining and Metallurgy and really trying to set out, um, you know, what the issues were and really, you know, making a case for optimising that, in fact, you know, the industry – you know, creates its own boom and bust scenarios in that, you know, we expand when, when the prices rise, we expand too quickly. And then what happens is because, you know, you have this lead lag effect, um, but the time prices start to soften, and then, you know, the massive production uh, supply comes online and then it just exacerbates, you know, the price fall. And that's what we saw from 2013 really all the way to probably 2017, 2018, you know, prices were quite muted. Um, we saw, you know, copper, for instance, you know, bellwether bottoming at about 4,500. Uh, and then again, it revisited those, um, those prices 2019. Um, and so really that, that experience um, and almost, you know, this um, self-implosion of the industry, um, probably really needed to have light shed on it. And then the question was, well, what can we do about it? And I, I, I think this book attempts at least to, you know, put the spotlight on the fact that if you understand your whole body um, and you allow your whole body to tell you what it can sustain, then what will happen is that we don't overinvest in single whole bodies. And in fact, you know, we make the point uh, in, the, in the book where, you know, Oftentimes, investors are asked to overcapitalize deposits, um, and that always ends tragically. So, ultimately, for the investor, and it's it's it it is, if you wish, almost almost complex, I guess, for the layman. But perhaps in that there is a message that mining is a complex business, and uh, and then perhaps you know investors should be demanding 
you know, different metrics now to, to measure their investment. For instance, I think you and I spoke last week and I said, you know, one of the measures that I would suggest that investors look at closely is, you know, how many ounce or, or what's the um, dollar free cash flow per, you know, ton of copper, pound of copper or ounce of gold. Because if you measure how much cash is coming out of the operation per ounce produced, um, it really holds the feet of miners to the fire and keeps them honest. So what you mentioned that um, investors overcapitalized some of these projects, but in my experience in the last year in particular, developers are undercapitalizing their capex needed to bring mines into production. So could you address those two things side by side, perhaps? Yeah, um, you know that's not hard to understand. I mean, at the end of 2013, you know, 40 of the top CEOs were uh, asked to leave their companies. Um, you know, they really were scapegoated. Um, you know, half of the half of the um, blame, you know, clearly um, should have been on on the CEOs. But I think the other half of the blame was, you know, investors encouraged them. Um, you know, they were rooting for the CEOs to build these big pipelines. Um, and then ultimately what happened is, you know, prices move in cycles. Um, and so the sort of the end of the cycle came and, and, and it was a bloodbath. It really was. And so the p- pendulum then swung. And, you know, suddenly, you know, uh, CEOs um, were very wary to overcapitalize. Um, the market demanded, um, you know, returns. It demanded that... Uh, you know, companies pay dividends and, you know, mining companies are no different to other companies. That is their role. They should be, you know, um, paying dividends um, and not just convince shareholders, look, you know, there's going to be capital growth. And in fact, what, what once uh, I asked a, a banker, you know, why why isn't there a, a, a reason for uh, miners to, uh, to pay dividends? And this was in the, in the 90s. And he looked at me, um, and he said, you really don't understand business. So, you know, there was that kind of, you know, impetus about capital growth in the 90s and the 2000s, and people were less worried about dividends. And then suddenly, you know, the market um, was dismayed um, that during that cycle, not enough was paid in dividends. So the, the pendulum, as I said, swung back. Um, you know, CEOs are, are reticent now. But as I say in the book, um, Mark Bristow, who's the CEO of um, Barrick, um, which I think everyone knows, Barrick Gold, says, you know, the problem now is we haven't been investing in our ore bodies and there's a reserve crisis. Um, and so, you know, a reserve crisis now compounded with supply chain issues, uh, demand side, you know, this is creating a perfect storm for much higher prices and incentive pricing. So the question now is, are miners, you know, going to be tempted now to take the mantra on again of go big or go home? And we all know how that story ends. Or is it timely to go in there and say, you know, those miners who perhaps have had the rhetoric that they put their all body first and the deposit is important, perhaps now is the time to, to um, for these, um, you know, C-suite executives to really take that mantra seriously about putting the ore deposit first. And then, you know, your investment thesis is based on what can your uh, deposit yield um, over the long term, not just sort of over the short term. And it's really not about necessarily how big you can make the mine. The question is, can you make the mine to maximize cash flow, which implies you're going to get the right cutoff, the right average grade and the lowest costs. Craig, everything you lay out makes sense. Now, I was not brought up within the mining industry. I came into mining because I uh, was an investor in gold and silver after the Lehman Brothers crash. So I'm coming at this from a retail perspective, not formally trained in mine finance like yourself. Now, I've asked guests on this show, and I said, are the gold CEOs going to make the same mistake that they made in the last cycle? And I've got both answers. Yes, because human nature is such that we will just repeat. (laughs) And then another guest said, no, they've learned their lesson. They're not going to do it. Uh, Could you make a prediction? Are the gold CEOs going to make the same mistakes of the last cycle? I think the smart guys won't. And I think the less smart people will. Um, (laughs) You know, human human nature is, you know, clearly we don't learn from history. Um, And as part of really, you know, I... 
did want to write this book uh, earlier on um, and get it published. Um, but I took my time because behind the book is an algorithm. Um, so it took me uh, a concerted amount of time and some concerted effort to, you know, create an algorithm where, in fact, you know, you can run, you know, multiple scenarios on an ore deposit. Um, and, you know, it's really an understanding the ore deposit that, you know, CEOs won't make the same mistake. If CEOs are tempted um, simply to listen to the noise and suffer, you know, FOMO, as they call it, fear of missing out, I think, sadly, those CEOs are going to run the risk of, you know, following the herd, trying to um, trying to increase output at the expense of cash flow. Um, and I think they will they will be hurt and hopefully, you know, and sincerely be hurt by shareholders who, who look at that and go, this is this is risky if the CEO is, you know, driving volumes as opposed to, you know, selling the, the concept that he's actually looked at the deposit and understood the optimal moments for that deposit. So you've overseen uh, feasibility studies. You've seen feasibility studies projects going into production. Based on your experience, just empirical experience, what percentage of feasibility studies are actually achieved in terms of the economics while in production? Um, really good question. Um, you know, my book um, speaks to that. Um, you know, historically, um, you know, there, there have been you know blowouts in terms of the budget. Um, and I'll get back to, you know, the question is how many of those projects actually make it onto the bandwagon. But, you know, typically projects um, suffer, you know, blowouts and uh, as a consequence of suffering, you know, blowouts on the CapEx side, you know, many projects don't see the light of day. Um, I mean, there's been some, you know, horrendous stories about, you know, capital estimates that, um, you know, were when, when the final you know, dollar was put in or four, five, six times over the original budget. But coming back specifically to your question, um, you know, I think it's it's a case of, you know, how many projects will come online. It's a, it's a case of the economics and it's a case of price. Um, you know, so, you know, in the downside, a lot of the projects really three, four years ago um, that just wouldn't put their hands up because the price wasn't right are now suddenly looking really good from the economic side. Um, you know, if you look at just technically, you know, I mean, the ratio is generally for every 100, you know, geological projects that you identify, only one ever comes through. You know, so that's a that's a statistically, uh, you know, not a good number. From resource to production, you, just to clarify, from every 100 resources, one comes into production? Correct. So the targets that the geologists play with, you know, ultimately, um, you know, the, the number that's out there and certainly that I'm aware of, there's of 100 projects that you know, geologists look at, look at estimating, and um, one of those ultimately will make it all the way through into production. So, you know, when you talk about scarcity, I mean, there's there's this idea, Bill, that uh, you know, there's there's an abundance of resources. Um, you know, there are so many hurdles in the process of actually bringing a project through into production. And today it's, it's it's becoming a lot harder, you know, with the advent of um, you know ESG, um, and you know miners simply can't just walk into countries and you know pick up the tab, and so they're buying this. It, there has to be a lot of engagement on the environmental side. There has to be a lot of consideration, and then clearly on 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 the government uh, interaction. So there, there's, today there's a lot of hurdles. Um, you know, Europe, you know, doesn't want mining in their backyard. Um, the USA, you know, we're seeing this now, this big tussle on the energy side. You know, you have those who think mining is bad. And uh, there's others who understand that if you don't grow it, as um, Natasha Fulian says from uh, Angler Platinum, if you don't grow it, you have to mine it. Um, and so, you know, those deposits that finally put their hand up and, and CEOs are bringing to the market are... Um, and in this climate, probably um, probably projects that uh, one should uh, one should consider. You mentioned you have, the merit. Yes, you mentioned you have an algorithm. So maybe dig a little deeper into that. In how does your algorithm calculate inflation in regards to what we're experiencing this past year in supply chain disruption? Yeah. So um, I mean, so inflation, um, Bill, is is 
one of many variables, you know. So um, I recall back in 2006, 2007, again, you know, as you were getting towards the end of the cycle, inflation was a problem. And, you know, from a pure economic side back then, really it was inflation was driven by demand. And so, you know, across the board, we saw the inflation of, you know, skilled workers, which we're again seeing today, skilled workers, the cost is, is rising quite quickly. Um, you know, when it came to, you know, tyres, oil, and all the inputs we began towards the end of the cycle, you know, particularly from 2007 all the way through to 2013, we saw inflation really biting. So the model in and of itself um, is not a predictive tool in terms of inflation. Um, you know, there are mechanisms that, you know, in the detail you can build in, then, you know, your, you can get your, um, in real terms, your, your investment to rise. And, you know, typically we work with uh, numbers in, 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 you know, real rather than inflated sense because you want to make a decision in real terms rather than inflated because the moment you put inflation into those numbers, it's really hard to actually make that business decision, right? Because it's really hard to kind of go, well, this is the number, but, it, it, you know, it's 15 years out because you've built some inflation. And the other problem with that is, is your inflation number that you're assuming correct? So what we try to do, and we found a better management tool, is simply to leave everything in today's numbers real. Um, and then really, you know, if you do want to, consider inflation from an investment perspective, you know, you adjust your discount rate. Um, so that's one way of doing it. In terms of- What discount you know, rate do you use, if you don't mind me interjecting? What discount rate do you use? I've been told 17% by other smart people to use that. Yeah. I mean, you know, discount rates is a, is a subject matter that is, um, again, a contested field. Um, you know, one of the things when I did my MBA- was that you know no variable that you put into your model is wrong or right, and and that's the beauty of capitalist markets is you know you've got to sit there and you've actually got to decide for yourself what you believe the discount rate is or what you believe the inflation is because if you're putting your money in, you need to take ownership of those metrics and those numbers. So you know, Bill, I'm sorry to disappoint you that there's no sort of panacea for you know what number do you put in, but I tell you what we also do is is you know, early on in 2006, we started playing with Monte Carlo analysis. And, um, you know, Monte Carlo's, you know, in, in my younger days, when I first saw, saw it, you know, I thought, well, here's a tool that's predictive. And over the years working with Monte Carlo, I realized that, in fact, Monte Carlo's are not a predictive tool. What those tools are is to say, if I've got 50 different variables, and it's not difficult to, to you know, compile a, a, a mining model with about 50, you know, variables. And so when you run it, you get a single number at the end of it. And what you really want to do is test that single number statistically. So you want to go and run 10,000 runs, change all those variables, and you want to stress test all the variables, including inflation, to actually see how robust your model is. And so I would say that if you're just singling out, for instance, inflation, um, you probably run the risk because, you know, there's other factors also that lead to, to business failure and mining. You know, have you got the right recovery grades? Um, you know, what's, what's the price? What are the ranges that you're thinking in? So, you know, feasibly, if you think the price of copper is going to go to $15,000 per tonne and the low end is 6,000 tonnes, you probably want to stress test that. Um, and of course, the other thing in Monte Carlo is you get that um, wonderful chart that's called a tomato chart. So, you know, you should really be putting your um, your focus on those variables in your modeling that, in fact, have the biggest impact on the bottom line. And that's not to diminish inflation, but again, you know, if 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 you're looking forward and you're saying, well, what's happening? Um, well, history is always going to tell you. And when you do look at cost curves versus revenue curves, you always see that, in fact, the, the costs tend to rise with the increase in revenue because actually miners buy what they sell. So they're going to buy the steel. They're going to buy the copper because they have to put in, you know, telecom telecommunication systems, you know, the big vehicles. Now we're having drones. There's a lot of copper that are going to be put into those very vehicles that they're going to use to take it, figure out, you know, the metals that the rest of the society consumes. So, 
you know, what we can do is we can expect inflation to rise in line with, you know, with prices. Um, and when I do my modelling, and I guess perhaps the answer lies in this is I will always do my modelling when I'm trying to understand the sort of cutoff grades, the average grades, based on the historical margin. Because if you've got a historical margin, if you put in a price, then, you know, costs will, 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 will you know, eventually sort of revert back to the historical margin. And by de facto, you know, you're accounting for inflation. But what that doesn't do, however, it doesn't account for the sort of volatility or the variability. And again, that's the beauty of markets. You know, each investor needs to take a view. Um, you know, don't just take the numbers that they've got. And, you know, if, uh, if the proposal is that you've got a $100 million NPV, you know, factor in some sort of inflationary impact into that number and discount it. Um, so that, that would be really the best advice. Uh, you know, and as I said, sadly, there isn't a, a silver bullet to, to give you or your listeners. Craig, when you were at Anglo-American, were you directly overseeing the feasibility studies or were you subbing, subcontracting those out to engineering firms? No. So, you know, the way Anglo-American um, uh, worked, and, and I thought it was a really good model, is that they had their own, uh, you know, back in the day, um, South Africa had these very, very large mining houses. And so the head offices were packed with, you know, very experienced and seasoned miners from, from all disciplines. Um, and so what would happen, and I us, you know, was in the economics team, um, and uh, the projects would come in, and they would come in from all the various different divisions, the copper division, the coal division, um, the gold division, diamonds. So these would all come in, and then we would look at all of the projects sort of independently in our, in our disciplines. The great thing about being a mining economist is, you know, day of fact, you'd have to look at everything that everyone was bringing in because this is where all the variability was. And, you know, at the, the bottom line was a consequence of, you know, your mine design, your, your process design, um, you know, your, your geostats and your geology, all of that comes together really in your, in your model. And, and it shouldn't be an accounting model. It should be an economic model because ultimately, um, you know, accountants love to deal with the past. You know, economists deal with free cash flows and the future. Um, and so it would come to us ultimately and we'd go through it with a fine-tooth comb um, and then we'd either fail it or we would send it back for, for you know, review. Um, and then, you know, the other projects that would pass um, based on, on the merits and, you know, allowing the all bodies to put their hand up. Yeah, there's thousands of retail investors listening to this discussion. So I asked that first question to lead into this question. Can we trust the feasibility studies that are put out by mining engineering firms? Because don't they inherently have a conflict of interest? Because if their client is the mining company, there's kind of a built-in bias, isn't there, to come up with an economic conclusion, but the, the ore body might not be optimized to the fullest, especially according to your standards. Yeah, so, I mean, what we saw in South Africa, Bill, is that we had, you know, in the 80s and the 90s, you know, we had in-house expertise. Um, and then, you know, sadly, you know, we had um, CEOs take the helm and, you know, their, uh, their brief was cut costs. Um, and, you know, typically, whether it's mining or other businesses, you know, these CEOs come in. And the easiest way to cut costs is to go to the, the headcount and just start slashing people. And then, you know, the CEO is going to get his bonus because, you know, his, his story and his thesis is there's too many people. What happens there is, is that we lose very valuable people, experienced people. And, you know, we, in our, in our business psyche, we just think people are expenses and liabilities. And when that person leaves and walks through the door with them is a huge amount of um, intellectual property. And so what happened in South Africa, these very people that they're entrenched, they took their big uh, packages and they saw their own consulting, consulting companies. And they would come back clearly at three times the rate of what they were employed for. And so when I look back, you know, I kind of think, um, you know, <sighs> It was, a, it was a phase, it was a fad, it was CEOs who, who, who were driving their share price, dancing to what the market wanted, and not really thinking through it and making a case for keeping good people. 
Of course, there's always going to be people who, who don't meet the mark and probably should move on. Um, but when you start cutting people for the sake of cutting, you're actually going to then build on the cost. So coming back to your, your question, so yeah, today companies, um, you know, um, certainly the bigger companies, because look, the juniors can't afford big teams. They can't afford the, the overhead. And so they go to, to, the, um, to the smaller uh, consulting firms. But consulting firms, because they sell hours, are by definition selling hours. So the longer that they can prolong the feasibility studies, the more money they make. And so what's unsatisfactory for, for me today is that, you know, I've seen feasibility studies last five years. And that's a lot of value that gets taken off, off the table if, you know, the geologists are finished with their resource or the estimation and it takes another five years to come to fruition. I have seen of late, um, you know, some of the smaller players, um, you know, they're really accelerating them. So then the question is, how can you accelerate your feasibility study? In my opinion, one of the mistakes was made is the silos between your geologists and then your mining engineers and your um, and your metallurgists are very real, and and so you know the balls are passed into these silos without the teams getting together, and so again that that wastes time and time is money. Um, you know, in my book, I, I talk about design theory, and and that's really bringing these uh, different dis disciplines together. And I would argue that um, from uh, PEA preliminary economic assessment pre-fees and feasibility should not take a company more than 18 months. But here's the thing. The C-suite will have a look at their neighbor and say, look, my neighbor is producing 30,000 tons of copper a year, so therefore we're going to do it. And that's a mistake because you can't look what your neighbor's doing. The ore body is very different. And so, again, this is where, you know, hopefully my book, you know, comes and, and reconciles that and says, you know, do your preliminary economic assessment or what I call your viability study properly. And then basically you have all the metrics by which to then tell the engineers coming in, this is the mine design that I want conceptually. And here, here are the numbers. And, and then what you'll find is they become very focused and you can reduce those timelines. Now I say that not just as a theoretical idea, is I actually did that back in, in 2013. And that's how we're able to accelerate from concept all the way through to the feasibility. Were you managing a third party when you were able to do that in 14 months or was that internal? How did you accomplish it? It was a third party. Um, but, you know, what I've done, Bill, is over the years made some very strong relationships. Um, and so the third party um, was a colleague of mine that we had both been um, in, in, a, in Harmony Gold Mining Company. Um, and so I have to give him credit because one of the things that I say in my book is, um, you know, these are not all new concepts. They're not concepts of my own. But over the years, I've taken the concepts, and, and I believe it's, it's right to give credit where credit's due. You know, so, you know, Don Van Heerden from uh, Minexcon in South Africa is the gentleman in question, and he developed, um, you know, the first sort of two-dimensional optimization kit. And then, you know, fast-forwarding, you know, people like um, McCarthy, and, and others uh, in Australia have, you know, played around with uh, the Hill of Value. Um, and so Brian, Brian Hall, for instance, is accredited with, um, you know, coming up and coining the phrase Hill of Value. And I think these are all valuable concepts that I don't believe are filtered back to the market to say to the market and retail investors, there are these tools out there um, that actually haven't received sufficient attention even if, within the mining industry. And I hope that, you know, given my experience, given my, you know, ability to have said, hey, guys, I can do from PEA to feasibility within 14 months, that it encourages retail investors to be saying to miners, well, we know you guys have the tools, so why are you taking so long to bring these, uh, these uh, projects to fruition? Excellent. And yeah. I think it's right that investors put the pressure on mining houses and mining companies to do just that. Well, that's one of the turnoffs of developers, honestly. They're in that boring stage of the Lasan curve, and then everything seems like it takes so long. And then when there's uncertain macroeconomic conditions, it makes some developers less attractive. So if yeah. you can speed us through 
that that uh, down uh, trough of the Lasan curve, you know, you're going to attract more retail capital in particular. Indeed. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, I'm, I'm quite disappointed, Bill, with, um, you know, I read through a lot um, and I've, I've signed off, you know, well over $2 billion of, of projects in my career, um, either being part of a team or, or the head of the team. Um, whilst I was working for IXM in the last three years, um, I traveled to all destinations where, you know, mining was happening. Um, my first year with IXM, I single-handedly did over 40 projects, which is, is quite a tall order. Um, and so, you know, having looked at the breadth of, of projects all around the world, um, you know, I'm convinced that, you know, miners can accelerate their, um, their projects. They can reduce that down curve, as, as you say. Um, but what do they need to do? That, you know, they need to do their preliminary economic assessments properly. And what I'm seeing is, um, you know, sort of those now charged with doing preliminary economic assessments are kind of doing a pre-pre-feasibility. And that's what my book tries to address is that a preliminary economic assessment in, from my perspective is a viability study. And I make the distinction between viability studies and feasibilities. Feasibilities is really where the engineers get involved and they go, right, so we've seen the viability of this deposit. Now let's just work through the engineering hurdles that we have to now resolve. And so in, in, in PEA stage and the modeling that I do, I can you know, in a very short space of time, churn out, you know, five or six different options that engineers can look at. And then you know, when you get to your pre-feasibility stage, we can be saying, well, are these options for these reasons, those options aren't feasible. But each of those options has its own hill of value. Um, and I think when you start to do that, and, and that's what's really held, you know, people back, is that when you go to an engineering house, you know, time is money and you say to them, you know, give me six options. You know, you're going to write a big check for that. Whereas what I've tried to do within a spreadsheet environment, you know, we can, within a very short space of time, you know, three to four months, generate six or seven different options and have them tested in that space. And then in addition to that, the PEA, what it really should be doing, and it isn't done enough in feasibility studies. You know, you give it to the engineering department and it becomes a very technical study. And yet, when you have a look at the codes, they say you should be looking at the politics. You should be looking at environment. You should be looking at, you know, the social issues. E economics should be fully explained. And then, obviously, technology. So, when I look at those, there's a preoccupation with the technical issues. And, yes, there is some of the others, but it, it's done quite lightly. And I think at the PEA stage, Frankly, that's where you should do what they call the pastel, politics, environment, um, pastel, social, technology, economic, and, and legal. And so it should be dedicated on that. And then, you know, that's the right space to be talking about, you know, this, the new ESG hurdles that are being thrown. So that really needs to be done at viability stage because you may have a great deposit. It's just simply not viable because there's an environmental issue. And, you know, if you give it to the engineers prior to having done that work, you've just wasted a whole lot of money because they'll get to that at the end of, you know, a six to 12-month cycle and say, we can't do that because now we've discovered a, 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 you know, a viability issue. It's not viable because, you know, land tenure is a, is a problem. Craig, there are, there are cynical investors that say a PEA is nothing more than a marketing document. Would you agree in part with that statement or do you believe there's true value in it? Yeah. You know, the cynical investors is a reason why they're cynical because they've probably had an experience. And, you know, the answer to that is, yeah, it can be. Um, but I think, you know, it's for the market to be saying, well, explain to me the PEA, explain to me what you've done. Um, so, you know, I think to be cynical and then walk away um, would would potentially rob you of value that could be had by doing the PEA. Now, one of the things that, and you know, it's really great in the Canadian space, um, you know, you have these codes such as JORC, um, SAM, um, SAMVAL, SAM, SAMREC, um, you know, the SIM codes in Canada. They're the only codes that recognize a PEA. And, and in that space, 
what was the distinction between a feasibility and a, and a PEA? And that really came down to the technical um, assignment of a resource versus a reserve. Now, in the categories of resource, as you know, you have inferred, um, indicated, measured. And in your reserve, you have uh, proven and probable. Now, you cannot transfer your inferred resource into, into reserve because they suggest it's too speculative. The problem that everyone struggles with is that, and again, it's, it's a cost-to-benefit relationship. You know, how much drilling do you want to do and spend it? How much time and delay is it going to have? So you may have well-defined your, your inferred resource and, you know, maybe only 25 30% is taken to the higher categories that are then transferred to reserve. So how, if you're only doing your estimation or your valuation, rather, on your reserve, you're not telling the market actually the big picture. And so, you know, all kudos to the Canadians for saying, yeah, we want to see the PEA. Um, and, and again, you know, what the codes talk about is, you know, you have to be transparent. So the real question is, can you, can you recreate and repeat what the mining company has done? Is there more risk? Um, and again, that all depends. Uh, it depends on the ore body. So uh, again, it comes back to what ore body you're having. Uh, again, you know, you have VMSs, you have sedimentaries, you have scarn deposits. All of these different deposits have inherent different risks and have inherent different economic signatures. So, you know, I I I, I wouldn't take someone who's cynical to task. What I would say is perhaps don't throw the baby out of the bathwater and miss a great opportunity. Have a look at the big picture and then, you know, the at the feasibility stage where things are a lot tighter, um, there's value in that as well. Uh, when we spoke last week, I was furiously trying to jot down some notes. So if you heard the keyboard click in, it was because I was writing things down. And one thing I wrote down here is that you learned from your trading house to ascertain risk. And then I asked you what questions I should ask CEOs. And you said, show me all your Monte Carlos and Hills of Value. So I've, I'm, of course, not as informed on that as you are. But let's say you're talking to a development, a CEO in charge of a development company. And you say, show me all your Monte Carlos and Hills of Value. And he goes, what? How would you respond? You immediately walk away or is he bluffing? Like, what would your interaction look like in that scenario? If I was a retail investor, um, you know, and, you know, if you've read my book, I think you would probably appreciate why I say that, you know, the hills of value are really there to say, you know, what is the right size of, of, of your scale? And, and, and you know, if, if you haven't done a hill of value and optimization and you're saying, well, we're going to do 100,000 tons throughput or 200,000 tons throughput, my first question to him, how did you determine that? And, you know, that might become a lengthy conversation how you determine it. And you'll probably say, look, you sent it to the engineers and this is what the engineers came back with. And I'd be going, mm, that's not really acceptable because you haven't told me how you got to the optimum scale. And so what you're asking me potentially is to risk overcapitalization. So unless you can prove that to me, I'm not going to invest in your, in your business. The other one is, you know, how much of your ore body should you be extracting? You know, so you have some engineers who believe total extraction. The problem with it doesn't pay the bills. You know, and one of the big bills that you have to pay are shareholders, retail investors, who are putting their money in early investors, and they want you know, alpha. They want maximum return on that investment. So if you're simply going to mine your whole body, you're going to get suboptimal returns. So that hill of value, in my opinion and my experience, is a critical component and one that retail investors should be saying to, to, to miners, if you come for investment purposes, show me your optimization study. And one of them is, you know, the Hill of Value is a great tool. It's a great visual tool to see very, very quickly how they've done that. So that's so much for return and investment. The other part is that, have you really quantified your risk? Now, I'm not suggesting necessarily that a mining color is going to be able to capture all of the risk, but in terms of, the majority of the risk is going to give you a sense of what those ranges are. So if I were to come to you, Bill, and I said, look, I've got a you know, copper mine that I want to go invest, and my NPV is $100 million at a 10% discount rate, and you go, great, let's talk inflation. Let's talk uh, commodity prices. 
let's talk your, your assumed recovery rates. How do you know what the sensitivity of all the variables in that soup impact on, on, on that single number that they've, that they've put out there? And so you're really wanting to ask them, you know, what's the range? What's the range of value that you're going to create? And, uh, and I think, you know, between those two, right at the top, Obviously, they filter all the way back down to everything that the miners do. Are two really good metrics, if you wish, on a dashboard to be saying, if I have those two pieces of information, I can make a very good and well-informed decision. My last question, because I know we have a a time limit today. Uh, An ore body that was in production, that there's still a resource uh, there. It's not in production, but there's a group that gets control of this asset in order to bring it back into production. From your perspective and from a modeling and investment perspective, could this be more attractive because there's obviously infrastructure, assumingly already in place, and then the metallurgy is already going to be known because it's already been in production. Uh, What are some thoughts on investing in a project like this? Um, You know, Bill, you're putting me on the the, uh, spot again, Um, (laughs) and every good geologist will say to you, it depends. (laughs) Uh, and so will an economist. So, I, you know, I'm, it depends squared, right? Um, I love old deposits. Um, and the reason I love old deposits is they have this wealth of information. So a lot of people look at these, you know, mines that have been mined. And they just look at the infrastructure and say, look, at, you know, in terms of capitalizing, it's going to be lower. And I go, well, you know, the RP in terms of all the data that you have is probably a lot of, lot of more value than, you know, just the, in, the infrastructure. And I'm not you know, downplaying, you know, the infrastructure. Um, but again, you know, in my experience, I've been to some of these older mines and, you know, frankly, the old body just says, look, I'm exhausted. And so again, it really comes down is, you know, where it depends is, do you understand the old body and have they articulated the old body? So when you're doing a mining investment, you know, really forget about, you know, up front, your first, your first, you know, forget about how much money you have to put into it, forget about scale, really be asking the questions is really explain to me in layman terms what the ore deposit looks like and can we sustain production? And again, I come back to, is this viable? And I don't think, you know, current miners sufficiently talk about the viability of the deposits. And so once you've got over the hurdle, it's viable and they can articulate why it's viable. So for instance, in South Africa, um, which is probably a bad destination to invest money in. Um, but uh, Orion Minerals, for instance, are, are looking at the old uh, Prisca mine, and they've, right at the bottom, they have an ability now with all the geology they've done to go and redevelop um, this mine, and it looks very attractive. But in terms of viability, then you have to be asking your, your question, do you want to be putting your money into you know, a country like South Africa, um, which is, you know, not really a good investment destination. And I say that as a South African um, who, who, who lives in South Africa. Um, there are other destinations, for instance, Botswana, Namibia, and, and, and others in Southern Africa that are much better investment destinations. So, you know, coming back to your original question, you know, these, these old mines, are they better than, uh, I assume, by inference, you know, virgin territory? Um, again, Ask the questions around the deposit and understand whether, you know, it's viable. Craig, your book again is Mining Economics Explained, a guide for boards, executives, managers, and investors. I'm going to link to that in the show notes to Amazon for both uh, U.S. and Canadians. And uh, I know there's people all around the world listening and watching. So just find your Amazon link. Or is there another place on the Internet where they could buy the book? Um, there's also Smash Books, um, so I can send you that link as well if if that helps your listeners, Bill. Excellent. And is there anywhere online where you would want to be followed, LinkedIn or any other uh, social media presence you have? Um, so I'm not the biggest uh, social media bunny. Um, I do have a <laughs> LinkedIn account, <laughs> so you're welcome to uh, to LinkedIn. Um, you know, uh, either follow me or send me a request, and I'd be happy to to receive your. Uh, your request um, and, and engage with you. And, you know, if you have listeners, you want to drop me a line on LinkedIn, always happy to, uh, to take your, your message and try to give you some, some advice the best as I can. Excellent. And I'm going to put that LinkedIn uh, link in the show notes as well. 
Craig, really appreciate the hour you gave us today. Thank you for your insights. Well, thank you, Bill. And, you know, hopefully your investors uh, get some value from my, my ramblings. Absolutely. And it wasn't ramblings. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts it might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.